and I am joined by my co-host, Connor, Connor Boyle. Con- uh, Connor oh, Boyle. Oh, oh, yeah, yes, Connor oh, Boyle. Oh, damn. Oh, 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 go ahead. No, you say it. <laughs> now you sound like um, you, Keanu Reeves. Uh, yeah, I was going to say you sound like Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Oh, ciao, brah. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> well, we are but dust in the wind. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be talking about a book that I have read. Chris has not Con- read Con- it. Connor is going to be talking about a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Try not to make it too luxury, but <laughs> no, um, please do. I'm I am your student. Well, teach this, me your ways. This I feel like you'll have plenty to say because it's another Jack Higgins book. And in some ways, it is a, uh, it is indicative of Jack Higgins' style, which we've talked about before. Um, and you, I'm sure you'll be able to identify what I'm talking about when I get to it. But today, we're going to be talking about the Valhalla Exchange by Jack Higgins, and this book was published. In, is this part of? Is this part of a series? It is not. No, it is not part of a series. I think one character in this might appear in another book, but it's it's not really uh, a character series, and there's no sequel. There is another book that is by Jack Higgins that's related to it, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But as far as I know, it's not like one of his character series, like you know Liam Devlin or Martin Brosnan. So um, this book came out in 1976. And it was published under Jack Higgins's real name, which is Harry Patterson. And I don't know That's why a he did bore, that. Boring name. It is. It is. I'm not sure why he published this under his real name. He had published several successful books uh, by this point, including The Eagle Has Landed a year before. So, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, this is just speculation, but maybe he was trying to, like, transfer all of that clout to his actual name i mean i I have no idea but this book has some uh, what i'm calling jack higgins isms um things that i've noticed in a lot of his books including an ace pilot uh and a scene including an impossible takeoff and or an impossible landing good nazis versus bad nazis no no we've been over this they're all bad nazis well, in this one, they're okay. I'll wait until we get to it. But blowhard Americans. Uh, phrasing. <laughs> uh, cavalier Americans. They ride a horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cowboys. Ah, okay. There you go. Um, a member of the Nazi high command as a main character. Like a named, like a, a, a historic member? Oh, yeah. I mean, is yeah. The... Okay, okay. Um, journalist or writer is utilized to create a framing device for the story. And I'm going to call this uniform porn, which means attention to detail paid to characters' military uniforms and uh, that the uniform actually plays some role in the plot. If you'll remember, the eagle has landed... The, uh, the German um, paratroopers uh, wear these British uniforms, but they also talk about how they wear their German uniforms underneath it. It's sort of a... Now, that's what I was imagining. Know. When you said uniform porn, I just imagined sexy music playing as they take off the British jumpsuits to reveal their true Nazi colors underneath. But I think Higgins has... He has a particular... Ow, ow! That would be. <laughs> I'm sure there's something like that out there, actually. But Higgins has. I hope a, not. He has like a particular like knowledge and fascination of, of like of military uniforms that he works into his stories. I've noticed, and the the last Jack Higginsism we see is non-Germans fighting in the German armed forces. So meaning Americans or Brits who have defected and are now fighting under the Nazi banner. We do see that in this story. Let me read the back cover to give you the sort of, you know, jacket synopsis. Man of the Shadows. That's what they called the notorious Nazi, Martin Bormann. Bormann, knowing the war was winding down and the Nazis were doomed, sets in motion a fantastic escape mission, the Valhalla Exchange. 
For this, he plans to use five American and French VIP prisoners of war as pawns, trading their freedom for his new life in South America. Set against the icy beauty of the Austrian winter, Borman's violent and bloody moment of truth comes in a breathtaking race against time and death. So, it takes place in the final days of the war. Are you familiar with Martin Borman, or does that name like ring any bells for you? The name rings a bell, but I don't remember who they are. I'm sure it'll come back to me when you start talking about them. Yeah, he's, I mean, likewise, I, I had recognized the name. I knew he was part of the Nazi high command. Uh, you know, I'd be lying if I told you that I understood completely the structure of government in Germany in World War Two. There's a lot of like... It's weird. It's it's weird because they were they were restructuring. There's the chancellery. There's the Reich's chancellery. There's the Nazi Party chancellery, which which Bormann was head of. Um, I I have a better grasp of it in terms of proximity to Adolf Hitler and um, purpose in executing um, his his policies and executing um, military actions and and genocidal actions. Um, Martin Bormann was uh, the private secretary to Adolf Hitler. He was the head of the uh, Nazi party chancellery. His title was Reichsleiter. He reported only to Hitler. He was very close to him. He was involved in the decision-making of the, of the Nazi party. He was part of Hitler's inner circle, um, arguably the closest member in that inner circle. And uh, Joseph Goebbels, the head of Nazi propaganda, uh, apparently had in, in one of his journals, it was read that he thought that Bormann was like manipulating Hitler, that he was a uh, he was sort of um, uh, we've used the phrase power bottom before. So maybe he was like power bottoming. Stop. <laughs> uh, but that, that, <laughs> that there was also uh, accusations that he was. He was inserting himself between Hitler and other people and limiting access to Hitler and that he was asserting power, you know, by doing that. So he's extremely as long as he isn't inserting as, as, as long as he isn't inserting himself into people. <laughs> well, we don't know that. <laughs> um, not in this book. Um, I've read a few different books that, that deal with Nazis fleeing Europe and escaping justice. Um, R- River of Death by Alistair MacLean, The Boys in Brazil by Ira Levin, and The Odessa File by Frederick Forsyth, which I, I really like. Um, and, you know, Nazis escaping to South America is, is much, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a trope now almost, like in the X-Men, you know, the, the, one of the movies I remember, Magneto tracks down someone in Argent- Argentina, I think. But the Valhalla Exchange is the first of these types of stories I've read that specifically deals with the process of this person escaping. Um, although River of Death by Alistair McLean has a little bit of that material. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about Martin Borman before we actually get into the book. Martin, Yeah, who is he? So as, as I mentioned, his, he was um, very close to Adolf Hitler. Uh, he was the Reichsleiter, head of the Nazi Party Chancellery. His death, or the question of his death, was a matter of controversy for quite some time. Ac- according to one of his colleagues, this man Arthur Axmann, who was the head of the Hitler Youth, says that uh, after a few days after Adolf Hitler killed himself in the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin, that uh, Bormann was part of a small group of people trying to flee Berlin. And at this time, the, the uh, Russians were, they were inside Berlin. And that's one thing this book does well, is it, it kind of shows you the chaos and panic of, of the Russians um, closing in on the Nazis. But according to Axman, the head of the Hitler Youth, uh, Bormann was a, part of a small gr- uh, group that had fled the Fuhrer bunker and was trying to escape Berlin. Um, Oxman says that he split up with Bormann briefly, but later he saw Bormann's body, dead body, um, on this bridge near a railway station. Uh, so he was presumed dead. However, after World War II, there were report, reported sightings of Bormann in Argentina and, and Spain. Um, and on December 7th, 1972, construction workers 
in Berlin, working near that train station, uncovered uh, human remains. It was this, it's called the Lurter station in West Berlin. And um, it was only a, uh, about 40 feet from where uh, the his his body was believed to have, have been located. So at, at subsequent autopsies, they discovered some glass in the jaws of, of the of Borman and this other body they found, um, which I guess... I, I don't know why, but what I was reading is that it's thought that they maybe had committed suicide rather than been killed by, by well, actually by biting into cyanide capsules. That's why. But in DNA testing later, allegedly confirmed it was Borman. Uh, MI5 apparently was looking into this um, deeply, had a lot of investigation going going on. So he's believed dead. We're told it's been verified. But knowing the way that intelligence works, uh, it's quite possible that it wasn't him. Possibly. Well, you know, one thing to consider is that many Nazis did escape to S- South America. So it could have been him. It was reported that he was seen there. I mean, really, it's South America gets most of the focus, but it's really anywhere that's still sympathetic or neutral. So a lot of them escaped to Spain. A lot yeah. of them escaped to South America. Um, really... <laughs> a lot of them were bought up by America and Russia, you know. Operation Paperclip. Uh, exactly. Uh, and whatever the the Russian equivalent of it was. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, most... Uh, I say most of them. Uh, yeah, a lot of them did end up in South America. Yeah. Um, so, there was some question surrounding this. Um, despite that, he, he was believed dead so much so that... Uh, um, well, I should say this, uh, it, the Nuremberg trials, he was tried um, in absentia and found guilty of, you know, crimes against humanity. So I, I think that's good. I think if you can't if you can't provide a body and proof that he's dead, it's good to try him anyway. I don't think death should be also I don't think death should be an escape from being like discredited and defamed and. Uh, tried for crimes like you the his, history needs to show that you are guilty of these things whether or not you're dead or not right you too you're gonna go home and take off that uniform yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> we're gonna give you something you can't take off but that's that's where i've heard his name before yes yes i think maybe yeah he might, he's one of the he, he might be there he's one of the people he is he's one of the people at the theater in inglorious bastards yeah just to give you an image of who martin borman was he was this very like big guy um dark hair um he he was described uh, in, in the book they describe him as he's very big and heavy set but powerful looking let me get into the uh, the actual book itself and the the plot. There, as as there is with the eagle has landed, there is a framing device for this story, and um, ding. Yep, and there's also a preface that kind of teases you about like is this a true story or not. So here's the preface: Whether Martin Bormann survived the Holocaust that was Berlin at the end of the Second World War may be arguable. But it is a matter of record that Russian radar reported a light aircraft leaving the vicinity of the Tiergarten in Berlin on the morning of April 30th, the very day on which Adolf Hitler committed suicide. As for the remainder of this story, only the more astonishing parts are true. The rest is fiction. So that's the preface. And then from there, we have the first chapter, which builds the framing device. And it is about this... um, journalist this magazine writer he hears that martin that someone in uh, bolivia uh that this this uh caucasian businessman has dropped dead in the streets of this small village that he had a suitcase containing a ton of cash and that he was using this uh alias that martin borman was thought to have used i forget what the name is but uh, he thinks it might be Martin Borman that has just died in Bolivia. So he has traveled there and he's, he wants to look at the corpse to be able to tell if it is him or not. And when he gets there, he, he meets this American general, General Canning. And he kind of follows Canning around and they end up like meeting up and talking to each other. And they're like, well, why are you here? Why are you here? And, uh, you know, Canning is like, well... I think I know why you're here. You, th- you're, you think that might be Martin Borman. Um, that's why I'm here, too. Uh, let me tell you a story. And that's the framing device for the, the story itself. Um, 
The actual story takes place in April 1945, final days of World War II in Western Europe. And again, it's about Martin Bormann's attempt to broker a prisoner exchange using these high-value French, British, and American prisoners in order to effect an escape from Germany into... Uh, I don't know if they actually ever say that he's going to South America in the in the story, but I kind of just, just getting out. It. Yeah, he's getting out. Yeah. Um, much of the story. So 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 he's b- trying to buy his escape with people. You know, I will say that the major the, you don't learn too much about what he pl- plans to do with the pr- these prisoners after he acquires them. That's the story. Is like he needs to get his hands on these high value prisoners. Oh, okay. I misunderstood. Yeah, I thought he had high value prisoners and was trying to use them as like the yeah. currency to affect his escape. The, well, so he's trying to he's trying to get people. No, these prisoners are already being held by the Nazis, but they're being held in a location outside of Berlin in Austria. So he has to get there and he has to basically take them away and like make them his personal prisoners. That's kind of the story. Um, and of course, uh, things don't go as, as, uh, as he, as he planned. Um, a big part of the plot is this identity swap he does. So this is kind of like the weirdest part of the book or very early on in the book, he visits this like Nazi kind of mad scientist, if you will, will, who was an associate of Joseph Mengele. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I was good, you know, like you started that sentence, and I was nodding along, like, oh, oh yeah, Joseph sure, Mengler. that really. Yeah. No, no, no. Before you even said Mengele, I was like, oh, a, a mad scientist with the Nazis. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we've we've all heard this before, and yeah. I was thinking this is going to be like science fiction, and then you said Joseph Mengele, I was like, oh yeah, no, I guess this was real. This did happen. This, there were there were mad scientists. That's right. This isn't unfortunately unfortunately World War Two is not science fiction. It did happen. There were horrible experiments performed. Yeah, and they referenced that that this guy like was involved in all of these really awful you know uh, human experiments. Um, and what this mad scientist has done is he has created a doppelganger of Martin Bormann, and uh, it, he does it through plastic surgery. You never actually uh-huh, learn yeah. who the person is. Um, he's just identified as Strauss. This guy is Strauss, um, and he he is he looks he's been altered to look exactly like Martin Bormann, except for a few identifying marks here and, and there. And what Bormann does is he goes he goes into the room with Strauss, um, who has clearly been like studying up to like impersonate Bormann. He goes into the room with Strauss. They swap clothes. And when they walk out again, Borman is Strauss and Strauss is Borman. Um, mm. And for the rest of the book, uh, you know, when he when we, when it references Strauss, you know that it's actually Borman as Strauss. Um, and then uh, Strauss and Borman, with their their SS um, bodyguards, kill everyone in the, in the lab, kill anyone that could be. Um, a, right, a so witness. no one knows. No, no, yeah, no records. Um, I've seen Face Off before. <laughs> they stole from this. <laughs> <laughs> but again, so Strauss, as Borman, is aware of this group of high-valued prisoners, and uh, he's going to. They're being held in this place in Austria called Schloss Schloss Arlberg, which is this um, mountain top. Well, it's not a mountaintop, but it's a castle up in the mountains where the... Yeah, this sounds familiar. This sounds familiar. Hold on. I need to know what Schloss means. Because the last book we read was... There was the Schloss Adler. It refers to like a a mountain peak, like within a mountain range. Um, Actually, maybe not a peak, but like a mountain um, area within a a mountain range. Yeah. yeah, and this is this is definitely reminiscent of the eagle uh, land, or the where eagles dare. So so Schloss can mean lock, like to lock up. It can also mean castle. Okay, so cat. Okay, so it refers to actually. So a it's castle. like a hole. So 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 I I assume those two meanings are synonymous, and that's like it's a safe place. Like you 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 can lock up. Oh, okay. In it. 
I thought it, I, I, there's something in this that that refers to like a mountain area, but I mean, a German castle or an Austrian castle is probably going to be somewhere That still in the could Alps. be a mountain area. Yeah. yeah but okay. So um, actually, you know what it is? It's like sh- there's a Schloss, Schloss Adler still exists, but it, I don't think this castle is there anymore. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, okay. Good to know though. It's interesting that it's lock though. Cause like a castle yeah, I mean, is like it, a keep it, it, and a lock and. That's what I'm saying. Like it's it's kind of like two different meanings, but they're related because a castle is like a safe place where you lo- you hold up and lock up. Yeah, and so a lot of the the beginning of this book uh, takes place in the Führer bunker, which is where Hitler was hiding out in the final days of World War II. Um, mm-hmm. And in the final days of of World War II in Western Europe, it's framed as extremely chaotic and and lawless, where people's loyalties are collapsing. So no one knows who to trust. Um, the German army is colla- is collapsing. Parts of it are surrendering. Um, units are surrendering to the Allies. Others are trying to hold out. Others are just acting independent of any higher authority and kind of just doing what they whatever the heck they want. Um, and inside the Fear Bunker, it's shown as very intense and chaotic, and it's like this almost like infernal environment. Um, like it's like death row almost like everyone in there kind of knows they're going to die. Um, so yeah, no thanks. there's a lot of drinking. There's like reference to like a lot of like um, sexual activity going on. Um, because they're, you know, you know, you're just, you're describing all of this and I'm just like picturing in my head, all of the checklist items. Yeah. Well, so the, uh, it's it's not like as you're reading yeah. as you're reading things off i'm like ding so like excessive drinking ding oh yeah there's a lot of drinking in this um cuz they're in a cold environment and every time they come like out of the cold someone's like here have this yeah, giant glass want... of brandy um yep i mean that's going to warm you up yeah and but they're every, the, the one thing this book does well is like the russians are are just they're these brutal and merciless soldiers so no one wants to be captured by the russians and it's like that's pretty much the worst thing that can happen to you um and i was reading a little bit before this about you know russian activity in berlin and there's massive you know sexual assaults and um in 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 austria as well that like they the the russian soldiers who remained um, can were just like it was just like criminal behavior, like looting and you know. But but hey, it's the end of the war. I don't. That's a whole other conversation. But um, so, anyways, th- that's kind of where the story starts. Is the Fuhrer bunker? Everything's falling apart. Um, Borman has developed this plan to go and collect these soldiers and uh, or collect these VIP prisoners and use them to get out. And to do that, he needs help. Uh, and early on, we see this scene where these two tank, uh, these SS tank officers, um, Ritter and Hoffer, and Ritter is the higher higher command. Um, they they pull off this very impressive like attack on an Allied co- convoy. They they get into they move their tank into this position where they blow up the first vehicle in a convoy and then destroy. 30 other allied vehicles one after another and for this they are invited to the fewer bunker to receive a medal and but borman is actually doing this because he's identified them as highly capable um, agents who he is going to use to help him get to schloss arlberg and to affect this whole project the valhalla exchange as as he calls it he needs oh, he needs good men. that's where the name comes in yeah these are the two very capable hyper competent people who are going to help him um at the same time we kind of the perspective jumps to schloss arlberg where those prisoners are being held of that borman is aware of and wants to go and collect um they're being held by the ss and the SS at Schloss Arlberg are actually fairly sympathetic to the prisoners. Actually, I don't know if they're the SS. They might just be German military, and that's kind of important. But the Nazis holding them are sympathetic to these prisoners. Um, they treat they treat them relatively kindly, and they know the, the war the war is basically over, and the Germany is going to be the the, the, the they're going to lose. So, you know. There's no point in in hurting these people or mistreating them, and there is the head of the um, 
of the Schloss Arlberg, the, the Nazi military officer running it. Uh, I forget his name here, but he realizes, just like Bormann realizes, there's tremendous value in these prisoners. And if we do, if we're smart with, with what we do with these prisoners, that can impact how we're treated at the end of this war. And uh, General Canning, the American I, I mentioned earlier, is one of those prisoners. And he convinces the Nazis there that, you know what you should do? You should go out. There's got to be some allied soldiers around here. Talk to them. Tell them you have us. And you can surrender to them. Because it's going to show some goodwill that you give these prisoners back. And you want to surrender to the British or the Americans. What you don't want to happen is for the Russians to come here and capture you. They're going to kill you. They're going to torture you. So this is smart for you. It's the, it's the, it's the wise decision. Similarly, the, the Nazis are, like I said, they're sympathetic. There's rumors that the SS is calling for the execution of all high-value prisoners, and they don't want to do that. So there's sort of a, a, a ticking, there's a, the clock is ticking. They're like, if we get orders to kill you, I don't want to do it, and I probably won't, but the SS might show up and kill kill you guys anyway. So let's let's get you back in the hands of the Allies, and let's surrender as well. So obviously there's a conflict here. Bormann wants to get those prisoners. The Nazis in charge of those prisoners want to get them back to the Allied forces, which is not as easy as it seems. Like, they have to find them, and as I said, even in Austria, these people are afraid to leave the castle because they don't want to run into Russians, and they don't want to get killed by British or American forces either. So those are the kind of two big, like, that's the setup on both ends of it. And I mentioned he's, okay. yeah. I mentioned that, that Bormann wants to use these two panzer officers, Ritter and Hoffer, but what he, the second part of his plan is they are going to go and pick up these Swedish mercenaries who are fighting, uh, they have contracts with the SS. They're actually, actually, I'm sorry, not Swedish, they're, fin, they're Finns, these Finnish mercenaries who um, are very elite fighters and they're going to help them as well collect those prisoners because he anticipates that the, that it might be difficult getting those prisoners. It might be difficult getting to them. And these these Finnish uh, mercenaries are basically ski commandos. They're expert skiers, and the you know Austria. Okay, I'm interested. I'm interested. This is a skiing Tell me and Connor shooting book. Yeah, thank you, thank you, book for giving me something that uh, most of the James Bond things cannot give me. So I say most. So that's the basic. Setup. I mostly mean Spectre. I mostly mean Spectre, who teased a ski adventure in the trailer and then didn't give me a ski adventure. Well, you I'm pieces of shit. I'm going to tell you about a really cool ski scene in this that hopefully you know and you like. You know, I'm 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 curious. I'm curious on how I want to see the over under on how many actual real life ski adventures took place. I'd love to know like the history of like ski combat and how many like. Um, frays or sorties there have been on like mountainsides where skiing took place i'm i'm sure i mean it's not something i'm very familiar with if anyone's, I'm, I'm sure that it's if anyone thing. out there if anyone out there is a world war ii historian or a skiing aficionado that has this information for me uh email us at dadletpodcast at gmail.com i'd love to know about it so that's the basic setup like do, do is it is that more or less clear like what the sort of the stakes are and like this is what Borman wants to do this is why it might not work out um yeah so there's some and, and i'm not gonna just a non-spoiler spoiler i'm not gonna tell you the ending of this um i think that if i think people should read it i'll, I'll just that's the kind of setup i'll there's some really awesome set pieces i just to, to tempt people so to escape berlin which is being shelled by the the russians and as i said it's like berlin the city itself is like it's like hell you know um you just you don't know who you're going to run into out on the street uh but to escape berlin bormann and ritter and hoffer the two tank officers who are going to help him um they have to fly out on this this small it's called a liaison aircraft which is 
means it's an aircraft meant for transporting like commanders or people with messages or for reconnaissance. Okay, so a, a private plane. It, but it's a military plane. It's called a Fiesler uh, FI-156 Stork. And it just looks like a it looks like a kind of civilian aircraft. You know what I mean? It looks like almost like a postal service type aircraft. It's a single prop airplane. Um, yeah, it looks like a Cessna. Right, right, right. And uh, all of the airfields in Berlin have been captured or destroyed at that point. So they have and they get this pilot to help them. Um, they have to take off on this street, a very short yeah, street. Very uh, flimsy looking plane. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. So they, they have to take off down this main street um, at the end of which is this this monument. It's called the Victory Column, which is it's a real thing in Berlin. It's this very tall column uh, celebrating the Prussian victory in the second uh, Schlussig War. I, I, Better I, not hit it. I can't. Well, that's the challenge is it's like, listen, you once that thing gets off the ground we got to go straight up otherwise like there's a big obstacle at the end of the runway and it's very tall so it's a short runway it's nighttime the city's being shelled by russians as they're taking the plane off um and it's it's dark too so what they do is they have one of the guys like kind of stand further down the street and shoot a flare and they're like shoot the flare run back jump into the moving aircraft so it's very it's very you know uh hasty and janky um, so the Russians show up at the last minute and start shooting at them and well, spoiler, they do make it, but like just barely, it's a very like tense scene though. It's very, it's very well done. Uh, another kind of cool set piece I thought, you know, I'd mention is they have to land the stork cause it's a small aircraft and you know, they're, they've got a big trip to refuel it and they end up at this, um, very rural airfield where the this uh, um, Einsatzgruppen unit is camped out, and are you familiar with the Einsatzgruppen? Um, that name sounds so familiar. Are they the like the Secret Service type people? They're part of the SS, but what they yeah. are—they're okay. the executioner squads. They're like they committed some of the, like, the most like horrific atrocities and evil. In in Great. yeah, uh, they would go and kill in a single day, like thousands of, of undes, you know, quote unquote undesirables, just mass murderers. Um, and so they, they, and again, as I said, this is the final days of world war two. So people are kind of just doing what they want. So, um, they land the stork and there's these Einsatzgruppen, uh, people, uh, camped out and, um, they're essentially going to take the fuel from these guys and, uh, Borman and Ritter and Hoffer have to confront them and it's there's a very big uh like standoff kind of and it ends up in this big shootout um he he uh was uh, anyways one <laughs> so Borman was ideologically a Nazi and believed in like inferior races um and one right. of the Einsatzgruppen, one of them is a Ukrainian guy. And I think he <laughs> refers to him as a Slavic ape. <laughs> Which, oh, my God. But um, it's there we go. Outmoded dates, um, yeah. ways of thinking. Ding. But it, it, there's a sort of Mexican standoff moment where they um, they have a shootout. And I think Martin Borman as well actually kills someone frequently in the book. He's. He's shown as carrying like um, a Walter PPK in his pocket and like having it pointed at people during conversations, like unbeknownst to them. Um, but uh, the, another set piece in this. Uh, that's that's called paranoia. I mean, in, in, in World War Two, that's, I guess, warranted. But going into every conversation with a gun in your pocket pointed at your enemy unbeknownst to them, that's very paranoid behavior. <laughs> Uh, he he in so Borman, aka Strauss, as I said, he's he's um he's very paranoid that people are going to identify him, and he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. My name is Strauss, and I actually work for like the Nazi prisoner of war, um, like uh, agency or something like that. That's his as he, yeah. as he's pointing a gun at them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other uh, uh kind of set piece here I thought was really good is they end up. Borman and Ritter and Hoffer end up hooking up 
with those Finnish mercenaries. And the story with them is they have contracts with the SS and the contract runs up or, you know, uh, expires the next day at 9 a.m. And Borman shows up and or Borman, a.k.a. Strauss, shows up. And Ritter is the guy who, who like, takes point. He sort of takes charge. He's, he's a lot like Steiner in that regard. Like, he's very, like, hands-on. Tells them, he's like, well, your contract expires tomorrow at 9. And until then, you're going to do what we tell you to do. And they're like, well, okay, that's fair enough, you know. But when he meets them, you know, all these badass ski commandos in their like white parkas they're expert skiers they're when he when he meets them at this compound they're they're like jump doing jumps kind of <laughs> like they're like jumping off of this little hill and he gets there and is like i have to show these people who's boss like if they're gonna follow me they need to respect me otherwise you know they're gonna you know they just need to know that i'm the alpha here so he's like oh look at that that's cool hey let me borrow your skis and one of the guys is like, yeah, sure. Okay. And he puts on his skis and he, he does like this, like really impressive, like slalom. And then he, he does the jump they do, but he does it like a million times better. And he like jumps over this vehicle and everyone's like, oh my God. Like it, it's such a kind of silly, like macho moment where he, he has to show them that he's the boss and he does it by being like the cool stuff. Yeah. Stop, stop, stop. Roll back. Who is doing this? I think I am understanding, but who is doing this? Not Martin Bar- Borman. That'd be funny. Okay. The... Okay. <laughs> I'm no, Adolf Hitler does that. <laughs> no, I want I want this movie where Martin Borman is like, uh, hey, hold my beer. I need to show you how yeah. fucking yeah. Uh, hyper-competent male protagonist I no, am. No, it's the guy who And Ritter. does a goddamn ski, ski jump over some vehicles like Evil Knievel while bond music plays it's the dude ritter who's the uh the the tank commander and he's part of the ss and it he's frequently referred to as like he like the uniform porn the panzer unit of the ss has this um like skull and crossbones uh patch and people always see him in it and kind of get a little freaked out because it's like notoriously kind of a badass you know unit that he's in um, hey, do you know where the skull and crossbones uh, originated from in terms of German military? Uh, no. Uh, it was the Death's Head or the Hussars in World War One. They wore big fuzzy hats with skull and crossbones on them. Actually, you know what? They refer to it as the Death's Head in this book. So, you know, that's that's yeah, how they the, refer it. The, the Totenkampf. Yes, they use that. The, the Totenkampf. That's exactly what they call it in this. Yep. Um but so what connor when do we get to read about world war one I? I want to do that well um, <laughs> go on go on go maybe on there's I'm a jack higgins world war one book <laughs> oh my god please if that exists please tell me <laughs> so those are some of the 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 exciting scenes i enjoyed in this there's a lot more characters i don't mention um but what ends up happening is there's obviously this um this conflict where borman and his finnish mercenaries arrive at the schloss arlberg um are they uh, would you say they're gonna finish things finish the job boys let's finish the job <laughs> oh my god but the um <laughs> the the nazis at schloss arlberg have already surrendered to uh general canning at that point and are like and this is part of the book they're like no we're with you now the world's over then you know or the war's over we're We'll we'll fight we'll fight alongside of you, and Martin Borman and his Finnish mercenaries are trying to like basically lay siege to the castle and collect the soldiers. So it's a war between Borman and the Finns, or Borman with the Finns versus the prisoners and um, some American soldiers, like a small group of American soldiers that reached that castle, as well as the Nazis who have surrendered. Um, and there's a lot of action at the end. Uh, and I, I wanted to read, um, there's a good scene. I always like sharing like quotes so people get a sense of what yeah. the language is like. So, you know, I, you're so good at, at remembering to do this. I'll be reading something and I'll be like, oh, this is a good line. And I'll make note of it and I'll never go back and like read it out again. So I'm glad you do this. It It, it, it is definitely a boon to the podcast. 
I just uh, have trouble remembering which ones I was going to read. Um, anyway, so Strauss, a.k.a. Martin Borman, Ritter, and Hoffer are, they basically, they meet up with um, General Canning and um, this Captain Howard, who's one of these American soldiers that shows up, and um, Strasser. Strasser is the guy who's in charge of the prisoners at Schloss Arlberg. So he's the Nazi. But at this point, he is surrendered to the Americans. So at this point, Bormann, Ritter, and Hoffer are saying, like, we're going to take those prisoners now. And Strasser and the Americans are like, no, it's it's over. They're, it's That's not happening. Um, I'm sorry, Hesser is one of the Germans, the good Germans now. Um, here's the quote. Uh, there has been a surrender here, Hesser said, according to the rules of war. I have done nothing dishonorable. A surrender to three members of the American army, Strasser said, and Strasser's one of the bad Nazis. You tell me there's... They're all bad. They're all bad. Sorry about that. No, you get it. You get what I mean, though. (laughs) Um, A surrender to three members of the American army, Strasser said, You tell me there is nothing dishonorable in this. You will speak to me, if you please, Canning said. As this gentleman has made plain, I command here now as senior allied officer present. No, General, I think not, Ritter said calmly. Our business is with the officer in command of Schloss Arleberg, and to us he must still be Oberst Lieutenant Max Hesser. Until relieved of that duty by the high command of the German army. Ritter turned to Hesser. You took an oath, Colonel Hesser, as did we all, I think, an oath as a German soldier to your Fuhrer and the state. To a madman, Hesser said, who has brought Germany to her knees. But also to the state, to your country, Ritter said. You and I are soldiers, Hesser, like General Canning here and Captain Howard. No difference. We play the game on our side, they on theirs. We can't hope to change the rules in the middle to suit our personal convenience. Not any of us. Is that not so, General? It was Captain Howard who answered him. Is that how you see it? A game, nothing more? Perhaps, Ritter said. The greatest game of all, where the stakes are a country, where the stakes are a country and its people. And if a man can't stand by his own, he is less than nothing. So, a reference to the game again. That's a Jack, I guess another mm-hmm. Jack Higgins is. Yeah, he likes that. Yeah, and it should, uh, we should state, um, too, as well, that, uh, shit, I lost my place, so give me a second. Um, so, Captain Howard, I mentioned that the in the beginning, those Panzer tank officers, Ritter and Hoffer, um, pull off this really, like, successful attack on this Allied uh, convoy. Captain Howard was part of that convoy. And watched a lot of people die and he saw Ritter and Hoffer uh, there and it's at this point like a few paragraphs le- later that um, Captain Howard recognizes that Ritter is the guy who almost killed him a few days ago and it's a really good exchange I like it this is such like tough guy talk here it's really good um, here uh, here here it is um, Howard, Captain, again, Captain Howard is the American. Howard said, Major Carl Ritter of the 502nd SS Heavy Tank Battalion, you said? Ritter turned slowly. That is correct. Have we met before? I'm sorry, let me fuck that up. (laughs) Okay, I'll start this over. Um, Captain Howard said, Major Carl Ritter of the 502nd SS Heavy Tank Battalion, you said? Ritter turned slowly. That is correct. We've met before. Have we? Last Wednesday morning, that little affair on the way to Innsbruck, when you took out an entire British armored column, I was one of the survivors, along with my two friends up there on the wall. Congratulations, Ritter said calmly. Your luck is good. You can tell your man there to take his hand off the butt of that Walter. I'm not going to kill you. Yet. I mean, that wouldn't be playing this game of yours according to the rules, now would it? Your choice, my friend, said Ritter. You'll be coming in, Howard said. Or you'll try to? 
Yes, I think so. I'll be looking for you. Canning called from the gate. Captain Howard. Howard turned and ran back through the snow. I just love that. You know, and when, just to clarify, he's like, well, you'll be coming in, meaning like you're going to try and take the castle because that's sort of the conversation they're having is like, you should just give up. And then they're like, no, we're, we'll get into that castle if we need to. But I like that. He's like, you're coming in. Yes. He's like, okay, good. I'll be looking for you. It's like, I'll find you in there and kill you. <laughs> um, not going to spoil. Dude, it's rough. It's, it's rough to be like, hey, I remember you, uh, you and your friends that are up here on this wall that we just killed. Mm-hmm. I guess you were lucky. It's like, okay. In what... <sighs> I, I, I am finding it, I, I understand self-preservation is a thing, but I think I would personally find it very hard to not uh, immediately try to kill those men that, that are pointing out my friends that helped me in a, an, uh, like a stressful situation and that they're like, oh yeah, we killed these guys. You're lucky that we didn't kill you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, there's a small little group of American soldiers. One of them, his name is Fine Bomb and he's, he's a rifleman. You get the impression he's like a private or kind of a lower, lower ranking soldier. And as I said, this takes place towards the end of world war two. And they all, the American soldiers like Higgins gives you different portraits of like the different approaches to, to or the different emotional states of people towards the end of the war. Uh, Captain Howard is much more like emotional and sentimental. And he's like, this whole thing was terrible. Like so many people died. It's just really awful. But there's also Feinbaum, who is like, he's this really rough around the edges guy who at one point says like, man, I kind of, it sucks that this is all over. This has been like, I'm good at killing people. And like, this is what I want to do. And, um, but he's extremely capable as well. He's like very, he's very, he's a very good and dangerous soldier. So he comes in handy. Um, and I get, again, that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed this book. Uh, and one of the things I liked about it is it, it takes place at the end of World War II. Higgins creates these characters who are affected differently by by that. Um, there's more capable people. There's people who are afraid. There's people who are panicking. Um, uh, again, uh, I, I, well, I've recently uh, rewatched Band of Brothers. Have you, You've seen that, right? Yeah. The last I also need to rewatch it, but yeah, the last three episodes, you know, it's it, the end of the war seems like it's in sight, then it's happening, then it's like we've won and we're still here. Um, it's an interesting like war. That's, I want to see more more media discuss how war doesn't end when the war ends. I mean, certainly not for the people that actually live in in that space themselves you know well and that's some stuff that you see in godzilla minus one is the like aftermath of a war on a place uh and not necessarily a place that was well fought in you know japan gets into the war kind of late and everything but you know they did get nuked twice um Mm -hmm. and they've got to deal with all of that stuff which is why the movie godzilla came about but uh i want to see more stuff about like the aftermath of war and how troops don't just get to go home right away and how any sort of recollecting recollection happens reconciling uh rebuilding like all of that kind of stuff that you see in movies like the war ends and everyone's cheering and happy and throwing their hats in the air and you never get to see the like uh drudging like bittersweet like vibe that comes about after the victory an interesting type of character and one appears in this book briefly at the beginning but it, that i've seen in band of brothers the pacific and again this book is the person who shows up at the end of the war and kind of feels almost like humiliated like i didn't get to fight anyone i didn't get to kill anyone and but i'm also surrounded by these men who are like veterans of the war and will I go home and like tell people I was in World War II or like, will it, you know, that doesn't seem right. Like there's, there's always these people who, who their first day of the war is the last day of the war. And it's incredibly like stressful and kind of humiliating for them. But um, 
that you know, I, I so there's this big fight at the end. I'm not going to tell tell anyone what happened because I, I want to leave it open as to whether Borman escapes and is successful. Um, the fact that General Canning is telling the story at the beginning should kind of clue you in as to whether or not he got the prisoners and you know did the Valhalla exchange. But um, you know maybe something else happened. I don't know. A um, little piece of trivia before I kind of wrap up and rate this book. The, the Fiedler's Stork, that little airplane they used to get out of Berlin, uh, that is the airplane that was used in the uh, Grand Sasso raid, which is mentioned in The Eagle Has Landed. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's Which is where they, they uh, broke Benito Mussolini out of a, a mountaintop, um, the, yep. the Apennine in the Apennine Mountains. Uh, in Italy and they used uh, gliders to like attack and land, but they needed an airplane that could like take off in a, off a short runway. So, and that's what they transported uh, Mussolini in. Um, but, but that's um, much uh, those gliders are probably much better than the ones that were proposed to attack the heavy water facility. <laughs> Do you know about that? Wait, say that again. Do you know about the 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 proposed attack on a German heavy water facility in uh, I want to say Norway, but it's one of the like Icelandic uh, places. No, tell me. There was a there was a heavy water facility in like a, a glacier area, like a fjord, and there was a a mission proposed to have soldiers go in on these gliders. And the soldiers that saw the gliders were like, hell no, we're not flying those. Those are death traps. They're flying coffins. Like, we're not doing that. And so they had to, like, rewrite the plans, like, three times to, like, come up with a plan that the, that the people would actually accept. And I wonder I wonder how those gliders uh, measure up to the ones used during the, the rescue of Mussolini. Well, apparently they planned on initially using a helicopter to get Mussolini out, but it broke down. So they used the stork and... This is this is from like um this little history website that I think it was actually the people who designed the stork like it's like the company now. Um, it landed in just one hundred feet, and then took off in just two hundred feet despite being overloaded. So, um, well, let me let me kind of give this a rating. Um, and and you know would I recommend this? Um. I'll just say it, it has a similar appeal to The Eagle Has Landed, um, but it's much more niche in its subject matter. Um, I think any reader would enjoy this, but the, the historical context is narrower and more specific than Eagle because it's set at the, at the end of the war and um, there's a lot going on politically in the book setting, whereas Eagle's relegated to this little village in this group of soldiers. Um, it, so for that reason, I think the historical setting is more interesting. And for that reason, I think a dad lit reader would enjoy this. Um, it, it tickles your historical taste buds uh, a bit more than Eagle. Um, okay. But as the number of Higgins titles I've read, it's like approaching the double digits. I'm beginning to see how he there's these familiar wells that he likes to dip into. Um, and as I, as I said with The Eagle Has Flown, which is the sequel to The Eagle Has Landed, there's a lot of the same beats, you know. There's the, the you know, the impossible takeoff to start the mission, and, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of paced the same way. But it's still mm -hmm. extremely entertaining. He does it well. I won't go as far to say he has a formula, but, like, maybe. But it, it, it works for me. Um, I will say... Uh, Maybe I, I might rate it lower than the Eagle has landed because of those repeating story elements. Um, because I've read a lot of his books, I, I'm, I tend to compare them against each other. Okay, but but okay, without if you had not read them, what would your grading be? As dadlit or as a as overall? Both. Okay, um, just as is like would I recommend this as a book to some person? You know, not a dadlit reader, but someone just asking for something good. Oh, a hundred percent. I would rate it high on both of them. As just a as a book, I would give it you know like seventy five out of one hundred. Um, 
you know, it's a World War II novel. It's not the most serious thing, you know, like you could read about the subject. But as Dadlet, I would give it um, 85 Fiedler storks and a, and oh. a tanker of airplane fuel, which is high. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Airplane fuel's expensive. Well, in this, what's funny is the Fiedler stork is such a kind of small aircraft and uh, has a smaller engine. There's no airplane fuel left. When they encounter those Einsatzgruppen guys, there's no airplane. There's barely any airplane fuel left at the at the airfield. But they're like, we could probably use the fuel from their trucks and like mix it with some airplane fuel. So I don't think that's a good idea. Well, I mean, that's what they do. <laughs> and that's part of why the oh Einsatzgruppen guys get mad at them because they're like, those are our trucks. We need those to get out of here. Otherwise, the Russians are going to come kill us. And they're like, well, that's too bad. We need it, too. What are you going to do about it? All right. Interesting. But still, I think I think it's a bad idea to put truck fuel into an airplane. They're de- I mean, they're desperate. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, well, it's either that or we get caught by the Russians, you know. But um, Well, it's either that or you blow up in an airplane. Yeah, it's true. Because you put the wrong fuel in it. Well, you know what's funny? Actually this, is, actually, this is especially not funny at all, but so that Einsatzgruppen scene, um, they have like these girls with them that are clearly like sexual prisoners to these Einsatzgruppen um, uh, soldiers. They're more like state police, but um, and that's part of why they confront the Einsatzgruppe, and they're like, you have to let those girls go. And um, they do. They kill a few of the Einsatzgruppe guys and tell the girls, like, get out of here. There's some Russian forces around here. Go surrender to them. But after that, Borman's like, you know... Get out of here. Don't ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, Borman, <laughs> Borman tells Ritter, he's like, yeah, those girls we saved... You know what the Russians are going to do to them is like worse than whatever they were doing to them. And he's like, yes, I'm aware of that. But what are you going to do? I mean, and actually he says Ritter like talks to one of the girls who's a prisoner and she's like doesn't trust him, even though he's trying to like liberate her from these these, you know, Einsatzgruppen uh, guys. And he tells her like she doesn't trust him. And he's like, well, what do you want me to say? I'm sorry. Like he's it's this very odd exchange where she's like looks at him as an enemy and he's like he he has this sort of like nihil end of war nihilism like it all happened we, we can't turn back the clock you know um, let me do a little bit of casting off here Ooh, okay okay most who would you cast as borman okay borman or strauss um the, uh, both? both i had two two options for this so you have you have the person that looks like the historical figure, and then you have the person that can act this role. No, no, I only have I would cast the same actor to play both of them. They would play two. And roles, they just put them in heavy. Makeup. I just have two actors that might be good for it. One would be a younger, maybe like forty-five-year-old Brian Cox. Yep, because Borman. I can see that Borman's heavy set. He's big, but he's like is it, yep. And Co- and Brian Cox has the um, the like slicked back hair kind of. No, I'm just saying he has the the acting balls to do this. Yeah, another he's you know he, he passed away, but James Gandolfini. Interesting. Maybe a bit okay. a little bit younger James Gandolfini because he yeah I, I could see that too. He's big. He's got the dark hair. Okay, moving on, there's uh, Ritter, who's the panzer tank commander, who's the hyper-competent um, antagonist in this. And for that, I he's he's definitely steely-eyed and mean. Um, Till Schweiger, who is the... Uh, he is uh, Hans Landa in uh, Inglorious Bastards. He's been in plenty of things. Usually... You mean... You mean... You mean Christoph uh, Waltz? No, no, um, no, not Hans Landa, uh, Hugo Stieglitz. He plays. Oh, okay. The guy plays Stieglitz. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, Jen. I love that guy. Yeah, he's good. He's good. They have him in, um, well, he's in, um, now I think I'm getting it mixed up. Is he in the Thing remake? Maybe not. No, I'm think I'm getting him mixed up, but I do like the guy that plays Stieglitz. He was in, um, SLC Punk. He plays like one of these. 
one of the the friends of theirs. But um, and okay, so Captain or uh, General Canning, and General Canning is a very like hard charging like, but he also hands on general. Like he shoots, he he kills people. Like he's 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 a interesting character. For that, I had this actor, uh, Neil 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 McDonough. Um, and he uh, is in, yeah. yeah the the ultimate. He is the ultimate underlooked, like I want like a B actor, like the most like he's in everything and you've seen him before. He's got wonderful blue eyes, uh, but uh, like nobody knows his name. No, I, a lot of the casting. The I'm... only reason the only reason I know his name is because my friend and I had a thought experiment of who is the most like underlooked actor. And that was the 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 name at the top of the list is Neil McDonough. A lot of the casting I've done, I, I, again I mentioned I just rewatched Band of Brothers, so so sue me. But um, Captain Howard. All right, hold on. I'll I'll start the paperwork right now to sue you. <laughs> Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks can sue me. Um, uh, Captain Howard. They, they might. Who's like? Okay. He's a, a very capable. A little bit more sentimental and serious, but like a good leader. Um, Donnie Wahlberg. Um, sure. I mean, I know, I know. And Feinbaum, who who I, I described. Feinbaum is the, uh, he's very rough around the edges. Like, even at the beginning, like, there's this scene of him, like, eating, like, a tin of beans. And it describes, like, how this younger soldier looked at him and was kind of disgusted with what a slob he is. But um, I thought of uh, Fury. You've seen the movie Fury, the tank movie? I love the movie Everyone Fury. looks so, like, filthy in it. Like, they're so, like, really... They're covered in, like, grease and shit, yeah. So I said uh, Michael Pena. Yeah, he's great in that. And, like, everything he's done... Not everything, but, like, a majority of the things he's done since have been comedic roles. And it's I think it's a shame in underutilizing him as an actor. Because he is phenomenal in Fury. Yeah, I, I, everyone was really great in that. Um, and it's funny, I, so uh, that's it for the book. I mean, I don't have anything else to say about it, but uh, just speaking of World War II stuff, I, I also recently watched The Pacific, which I know is generally regarded as like not as good as Band of Brothers, maybe even just plain not good. But I thought it was really good. I mean, it's very different. John Bernthal is in that, and he plays a Marine. And... Yeah. Uh, you know they're they're island hopping in the South Pacific and they're going and um, fighting the Japanese on all these different islands and it's the Marines. It's um, it's a different kind of military culture and the 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 death rate and the intensity of the combat is different. So you can't really like follow around a unit like you do in Band of Brothers because people get so they get disconnected, they get killed, they like get you know re, re moved over here taken away from this person put over there so it doesn't follow like the same group of guys it follows a couple different groups of guys and they interact with each other but um in terms of uh like the the combat and the action like it is an intense show like there's a lot of lot of killing in, in it and um rami malik is in it and much of my most of the reading we've done in dad lit has focused on like European conflict, European affairs. So maybe that's something we should do in in the future. You know, something World War Two Pacific theater. Uh, Pacific or Africa? Yes, that. And it's funny too because I was thinking this was they could do like another Band of Brothers um, that's set in North Africa and Italy in Sicily, you know, Sicily, and maybe have like General Patton in it. it, it that would be kind of cool and yeah. Rommel, but. Well, let me just say one last thing actually that occurred to me because I, I, I've made a, a graphic of this uh, to uh, post to Instagram. Uh, we didn't talk about the book history that uh, there's, you know, the, a couple different editions. I read a, a paperback that has a um, it says the Valhalla Exchange and it has a, a, a skull like a ghostwriter type skull with fiery eyes um, and a, like an SS uh, cap he's wearing on his head. It is very odd. And I, I really hope we don't get and any trouble on Instagram because you there's a lot of you, I couldn't find a single cover of this that didn't have a swastika on it and it just oh, feels geez. weird I mean, posting if, a lot of swastikas just bubble it out bubble it out 
like seriously, I've seen a lot of uh, pages talk about controversial topics on Instagram, and to get past the censorship or uh, banning of certain things, they just cover it up with ink. So like, open it up on your phone's like file editor and just bubble out the swastika, and it'll get past any of that censorship. All right. Well, well, I'll, I'll give that a. I'll, I'll. I can do that. I've got Canva as well. I can do that. But um. Yeah. Just put like a red. Just put like a, a circle over it or something. Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah. I just don't want to. I just figured. I just think there's so many swastikas. It's like it's gonna pick layer, up. Layer it. So like so so write write the whatever you're doing and then put some sort of font over the top of that section of the art. That's a good idea. I can do that actually. Yeah. See, maybe we should have a whole episode devoted to <laughs> to, you know. to Canva and how to use no um uh definitely like the the interpolitics of running a podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um I, yeah, this was fun. I I I I'm glad we did this. Um if every if anyone else enjoyed this, tell us if you want more of this kind of thing where we like pitch a book to each other. Um if you didn't like it, tell us that too you can contact us on instagram at dadlit podcast or you can email us at dadlit podcast at gmail.com connor is wielding the knife i got him for christmas do not challenge him he he will he he doesn't know how to use a fair baron sykes knife but i do so I, don't challenge i us. will say there's um i've watched a video of this british uh, i believe he's a world war ii veteran talking about the knife and training with it and he says some and it's funny because he's like, and he's an old guy. He's his eye is kind of all fucked up in his head. But he that might be Fairbairn. Fairbairn is covered in scars, and like his hands are covered in scars. He was a World War II veteran, um, but like he also worked for Interpol and several other like um, police agencies, and has done like all sorts of weird. Like he he knows how to fight people hand to hand, and he has the scars to show it. Uh, look up pictures of him. He's a crazy old and he, man. He's but, talking about how um, to cut someone's throat properly. <laughs> oh, which is like you don't. You, yeah, that sounds like you don't him. cut it. Like you stab them in the neck, and he's like, and then you punch forward. You don't like. No one's going to be like slicing throats. You stab them in the neck, and then you punch the the edge of the knife through the front of their neck. Yeah, if you want to tell us about. Uh, your experience is being stabbed or stabbing please email us or message us at instagram uh thank you all for tuning in and um dad you later i guess dad you later folks also connor please plug your book right now before we cut off the recording yeah, i've got a sh- it's probably out by now it is probably out i've got a short story in uh the collection escalators to hell which is a collection of mall horror short stories from from beyond press from beyondpress.com you can buy a book there thank you get out of here don't ask questions